What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got everybody but Jake Dello, uh, Gabby Magnuson, <laughs> hey, Kiara Mitchell, hello, Alex Audie, hey, hey, and Hunter Marsden. Hello. So, two quick hits before we get into it. The first one, you know, I got a bunch of DMs about this, people blatting me on Twitter. The Biden administration finished their North Korea policy review. It was very low key. There was not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of advertisement. The press secretary was asked about it and she was just like, yep, we concluded the review. People keep wanting to know broadly, what's my take on the results of the review, but also like, what are they getting right, getting wrong, etc. And it's really hard to say. It's very unimpressive what we know, but we don't know very much because basically the press secretary said uh, we were aware of past policies toward North Korea being abysmal failures. We are still seeking denuclearization. We are not pursuing strategic patience. We're not pursuing a grand bargain. She didn't say the words maximum pressure. So they're aware of like the superficial level criticisms of North Korea policy, and they don't want to carry any of the old slogans into the future. And that's sort of a good thing. But uh, beyond that, all they said was like, we're going to see what happens and we are willing to engage North Korea and we just want to be practical. <sighs> so there's nothing there, right? There's no theory of success there. The idea that you're going to do probing engagement while maintaining a deterrence posture, not relieving sanctions, not trying to change the basic structure of the relationship, change the pattern of our interactions... That's the same as it ever fucking was, man. That's what North Korea policy has basically been for 30 years, except for the era of maximum pressure. I mean, like, that's what strategic... They said they're not doing strategic patience. Strategic patience was just deterrence plus uh, taking a if-asked approach to diplomacy and then not relieving sanctions, like piling sanctions on further. That's, that's where we're at right now. So, like, there's nothing here. The idea that you should get goodwill because you're not Trump very much misunderstands North Korea's perspective, which is, like, they think they are owed something because Trump lied to them and because they came out of the last four years feeling like they're at a strategic advantage. And the thing that we want from them is something that they're never going to fucking give, which is their nukes. So if they're in a perceived position of strength and they feel betrayed by the last guy and they're increasingly in need of something, right, Des like uh, desperation and they feel like they're owed, all that Kim Jong-un feels like he's a good gambler because he navigated the nuclear crisis successfully, all this stuff, right, plus South Korea is still, we'll see if the politics change in the next year or so, but it's still a progressive presidency, a progressive legislature, progressive, left, liberal, whatever. And so like they are in a mode of conciliation toward the North, right? Peace and reconciliation. And so North Korea has, just like us, a window of opportunity to make something happen. Otherwise, we're just barreling toward a crisis. And for North Korea, barreling toward a crisis tends to be advantageous for them, right? Short of all-out war, 
in which nobody wins, crises always play into North Korea's advantage or North Korea's favor. And so we should seek to avoid a crisis. Um, and so what concerns me is that <clears throat> there is no great urgency about not just resolving the North Korea problem, but like stabilizing it, right? We're playing a kind of de facto hardball with North Korea. And I'm not even sure that we realize it. And part of the reason is because the Biden administration consulted a bunch of experts to, to do this policy review, including outside experts. From what I know, they did not consult with a single person who is like me, which is to say like normal experts who favor arms control, who have some like have, have an unorthodox opinion about what to do about North Korea that's contrary to what the status quo has been. They consulted with fucking Steve Began, the asshole who was the North Korea envoy uh, under the under Trump administration. They consulted with people who are invested in a kind of status quo or like the historical approach to North Korea. It's fucking silly. And so we're just on an irresponsible path. But in the meantime, like nobody cares until it's a crisis. So for now, nobody cares. But I, I just thought I'd mention it now because there is nothing different in what they have said about their North Korea policy from the historical trajectory of North Korea policy. It's interesting to watch this unfold alongside the uh, administration's progress getting back to the Iran deal. I mean, they're talking about lifting uh, sanctions on, on Iran already. Um, why do you think one, one is moving along swimmingly in some ways and the other is sort of just digging in and uh, stuck in, in a forever loop? Yeah, that's a very good question. The, the Iran community, like the Iran watcher community is pretty eclectic. I feel like that, so there's a larger Iran watcher community and there's a larger North Korea watcher community. And within those two communities, there are like people who are primarily focused on policy. So like you're, you're doing the watching, but with an aim to make policy or influence policy or you're a policymaker mm -hmm. yourself, you know, in Iran with Iran, they're almost all policy oriented people. The Korea watchers are very eclectic. Like some of them are very detached area studies people, you know, activists who are, are not interested in like the negotiation part uh, or deterrence or any of that stuff. And the subgroup of people who are North Korea watchers that do policy, they're the only ones who are like really in this conversation. And so all of the North Korea policy Korea watchers are basically singing from the same sheet of music, which is hardline status quo. Uh, we need to, you know, CVID denuclearization, no matter what, uh, even though we know it won't happen. It's deterrence, deterrence and allies first. Sanctions can't trust North Korea, right? Reciprocity only. This is all basically cliches at this point. And it's, it's cliches that have led us to multiple crises that have proven over and over to be a failure. It's like this is one of the biggest failures in foreign policy for 30 years. And it's the same group of people who's in this ecosystem, this echo chamber. The dissenting opinion or like unorthodox views are sort of not allowed. Like I took a big risk when I started um, giving voice to a kind of dissenting view on North Korea. And it turns out like most people outside of the policy world 
this is precisely how they view things because they're outside of the policy bubble. Uh, they're not really listened to. And I, I'm in a rare position of like straddling these worlds, but I think it's a, it's a kind of like elite consensus. The people that they're consulting on North Korea policy have the same hardline views as the people who are formulating the policies and implementing the policies. And so we're just trapped in a sort of, you know, death spiral here. That's interesting. Thanks. I'm also not sure if it's true, but that's my attempt at an explanation. <laughs> Second quick hit. This is also a weird thing. So um, Tablet Magazine, which I had not heard of previously, uh, one of their journalists reached out to me. He was writing, this is like maybe six or eight weeks ago, and he was working on this very deeply researched investigative journal piece on the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, the sort of like lefty slash transpartisan um, think tank. It's a, basically a restraint think tank. I, I've talked about them on the pod a million times. I have very mixed views of them. Like I'm critical of them all the time, but I say good things about them too. Sometimes uh, I've platformed them before, right? I invited their chairman, Suzanne DiMaggio on the show. Uh, so I have like some of the stuff that they say, I find to be like repugnant and awful and ignorant. And then some of the stuff that they say, I feel like is the right message. Like they have the right position on a lot of policies, I think. And so it's very mixed bag. So this guy reaches out to interview me for this. And it turns out the piece came out and it's a big fat giant hit piece on the Quincy Institute. And it's, it's got, it's well re it's well sourced. It's well researched. He did a bunch of interviews, some even with Quincy people, the whole thrust of the piece is kind of the problem though. Like the flavor of it is very anti Iran very anti uh, Trita Parsi, who's the head of the Quincy Institute, uh, who's like he has he's kind of like an activist, um, Iran pro engagement guy. And the whole piece is just trying to really throw Quincy under the bus. And, you know, when you do interviews with journalists, you don't really know what angle they're taking. Um, and it was kind of clear by the end of the interview that it was going to be a pretty rough you know, what it ended up being, a hit piece. I just didn't know that it would be this particular flavor that it was. I got a couple questions about this piece, what I thought about Quincy. Like, do I really think that, you know, Quincy is a bunch of quizlings or whatever? And I, I can't make a summary statement about it, but um, the thing that I wanted to point out was that in the interview, like I comprise all of one paragraph out of what looks to be like a 10,000 word essay. So it's not like I'm a big feature of this, but I pointed out that Quincy, the work that they do is basically Overton window work. They're trying to shape public opinion about endless wars and particular, you know, the Iran nuclear deal, specific policy issues, but they're not doing much policy analysis and their antagonistic style toward the establishment combined with like a lack of sort of policy rigor in a lot of their stuff. It means that like their shit doesn't resonate with policy makers. So they have no ability to play like an inside game. And so they're limited in their influence to, you know, basically shaping, shaping boundaries of what's common sense, what's acceptable. The piece captured that part. 
the like I said something about like they're basically doing Overton window work. What they didn't capture was that like in my view, and like I've said on the pod, Overton window work is super important. It's like I don't know, 60, 70% of the battle for policy change or for trying to make like a better world. But there's the crucial decisive part is like, what will policymakers do? What choices do they see before themselves? How are they evaluating those choices, right? How are they weighing different factors? That's where you have to get into a kind of technocratic mode, instrumental reasoning mode, subject matter expertise mode. And that's where also playing an insider's game matters, right? Like it's weird to have a think tank that does not conduct themselves the way think tanks do, which is to cultivate ties to decision-making elites. That's like the most direct route to influence. And by taking an antagonistic pose, you're cutting yourself off from the most direct route to influence, which would seem to undermine the very premise of your like purpose, your raison d'etre, right? So I have mixed views here, but I just want to say I appear in this piece that I did not co-sign, you know? I didn't know what this guy was going to write, and uh, I am, I'm personally not anti-Iran, anti-nuclear deal, right? I am pro-engagement, generally speaking, and like I... I'll praise or criticize Quincy, first of all, whenever the fuck I want, but I'll do it consistent with like how I'm judging what they're saying and doing, you know? So it's going to be like a very case by case basis. Um, and so far they have not done enough for me to completely write them off, but I'm also not willing to co-sign them still. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there. Out of curiosity, was this the piece that, was the reason you sent all that tweet that was like, sometimes you get quoted and the journal does not fairly represent what you said. Yep. That's exactly. <laughs> that was my yeah. sub tweet. Yeah. Was it also the source of the tweet about the Vic Uni name? Cause I called Victoria Uni the wrong name in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was also from this piece. So they, they called <laughs> Victoria university of Wellington where I teach and where uh, some of the people in the pod go slash went to. Victoria University of Wellington. They call it Wellington University in the piece, which basically is like flicking is my nuts, they? you know? Yeah, it's very, very annoying. And the reason is because when you, like if you're an American journalist, like I get interviewed all the time and journalists do this shit all the time. They mess up the name. The reason they mess it up is because they go to the Facebook page or to the Twitter account and it says like the Maori name for Vic. And then it says like University of Wellington. It doesn't say Victoria part on it. And so they get confused and then they just say whatever is simple. And like I have friends who are scholars in America who call it University of Wellington. The first time I've, this is the first time I've had a journalist call it Wellington University. But it's, it's because the fucking vice chancellor of the university spent a bunch of money and used all of his political capital to try and change the name of the university to be not Victoria University of Wellington. And then he failed. He wasn't allowed to change the name. And then he changed it anyways on fucking social media and on signs, even though the <laughs> official name didn't change. So of course everyone's going to be fucking confused, man. It's like, it's unbelievable. Sorry to put this on the pod, but like, yeah, 
that it somehow I'm, intersects I'm with the Quincy Institute shit. <laughs> I'm glad we're getting down to that. That was a helpful explanation for me. Oh, how much time and effort and money was wasted to change the name, to rebrand a university that had a good brand. And it was like, it was a globally ranked school then. It's a globally ranked school now. The only result different from all these efforts to change the name was to confuse people about what the fucking name was. Like, and that's very predictable. It's not like it was Blackwater University. And so you got to change the name because it's like, oh, torture memo or something, you know, like... <laughs> There was nothing failing that would require you to have changed the name. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. Cool, so the first question for Prediction Market this week, will there be any pushback from North Korea following the Biden administration's statement on its new, cap on its new calibrated North Korea policy? And what do you think this new calibrated policy will look like? Ah, so I did not see the prediction market questions before I did the uh, opening quick hit. But the, <laughs> so North Korea apparently has already pushed back on the policy review statement. And I can't remember the exact quote, but they basically said there's going to be blood in the streets. Uh, and the, the blood part is a direct quote. I can't remember if it's in the streets, but that's about right. You know, and this is why it's important to have like a realistic assessment of who you're dealing with, what their goals are, and what the outer boundaries of what they're willing to do are. Um, like, it, you really do have to kind of know your enemy, as cliche as it sounds. And in this case, the fact that it's cliche is upsetting because they still don't take who North Korea is seriously and their circumstances seriously. Like, they, but Kim Jong un, A, believes he's a fucking good gambler b he believes that he's owed something c he believes he's in a position of negotiating strength d he's never willing to do under any circumstance the thing that we keep saying is the goal um, and so under those circumstances and he still is hostile like implacably hostile toward us he thinks we're in a rivalry situation the north korean regime itself is like extremely real politique they're like the ultimate realists you know so no trust and so you got to design policy within that and instead we don't even really try we're just like running on fumes intellectual fumes at the moment the north korean response to the policy review the idea like there will be blood that's to be expected and they only stand to gain from causing problems and the question is like do we want them to cause problems or not if we can if we can avoid that shouldn't we try to avoid that shouldn't we be willing to like change change from the past you know and so far we're not yep cool so the qu second question Following the recognition of the Armenian genocide by the Biden administration, will any other countries follow suit? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it's going to sort itself based on, you know, where you fall with uh, ties to Turkey. And I don't know if there are, there's an Armenian population in New Zealand or not. That was part of what, so there were two things that were driving the Biden administration to recognize the Armenian genocide, which is also, by the way, like, the first genocide of the 20th century slash 
not not in recorded history by any means, but like it's the first modern genocide, right? That coined the term. And in the U.S., there's a large Armenian American population that for decades has been lobbying to recognize the Armenian genocide. But the U.S. has had friendly relations with Turkey and it's never been like an urgent or very uh, politically important issue for the U.S. or for politicians. So uh, it's never really had traction. But now there's that Armenian lobby pressure on top of the fact that Turkey is just taking a shit on us. Like uh, Erdogan is is an autocrat who's holding our nukes hostage at this point and not really doing anything for us. Um, it, he's kind of a blight on NATO. So now with uh, the Biden administration upset at Turkey and seeing a chance to, you know, right a wrong or like recognize something positive, uh, not that's not the right way to phrase it, Rec like recognizing an injustice and calling it by its right name. That that's how this sort of came about. Um, so like, it's not clear to me what mix of pressures will work in other countries, but I feel like if you don't have that Armenian ethnic diaspora presence in your country, you may feel like you don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I do know some Armenian people who go to Vic and apparently the labor governments, the New Zealand labor government, they were trying to push for them to recognize it for the anniversary. I assume that's what the Americans did as well, yeah. but they refused to recognize it. Is there, is there like a, a Turkish thing going on in New Zealand? What's the, I mean, uh, there are reasonably close ties economically with Turkey, I think, as well, yeah. Cool. And what Jake says is an easy one to finish. Will there be an escalation of force by either side in the recent Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, flare-up? God damn it. I did not know this was happening. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely an ambush for sure. Yeah. I'll say... I'll say yes. But clearly I'm just... <laughs> bullshitting the one thing that's worth noting is that both kyrgyzstan and tajikistan fall in china's continental periphery and they are two countries out of a basket of countries they fit the pattern of weak governance corrupted politicians and structural violence against civil societies which is an unvirtuous cycle that perpetuates itself and worsens and it's a function of China's economic relationship with them. So like occasionally I get, I go off about like Chinese corruption or the structural violence of Chinese foreign policy. Right. Um, and I see imperialism in Chinese foreign policy or imperial content. You can put aside the imperial question the, and you can put aside the question of Chinese intentions. It's extremely well documented. There are entire books written about this about how structural violence, the, the fact that China is physically surrounded by a bunch of countries that are weak and corrupt and autocratic, China's policies have exacerbated that, not ameliorated that. And so like, ironically, they're making their own periphery less secure, um, more vulnerable, but it's in a way that allows them, to, China, to uh, exercise greater influence. And so it's kind of a perverse dynamic. And the only thing that I can think of 
when I see, it's literally the only thing that comes to mind when I hear Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan at the same time is like, they have something in common, which is they're trapped in this really bad cycle of corruption and structural violence and weak governance. Um, and that's all I really have to say about that. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, for Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, I got two quickies. Um, what first is from Ken Schultz, friend of the pod, professor, no big deal, at Stanford University. Ken says, well, okay, so let me start. So Mike Pence says, the most disturbing development <laughs> of the last hundred days has been the Biden administration's wholehearted embrace of the radical left's all-encompassing, rapidly escalating war on America's traditional values. Ken Schultz. <laughs> Fuck you, Mike Pence. Ken, Ken says, the guy who presided over the coronavirus task force while 400,000 Americans died thinks critical race theory is the greatest threat to the country. And <laughs> so good. Yeah. That's so funny. I don't even really have much to say about this, but like, if you're not, we haven't talked about it on the pod, but there's a hugely distorted line of effort during the Trump administration that lives on right now to take on, you know, that New York Times like 1619 project to like reestablish that 70, 1776 is when America began. I don't know. America never had slaves. They're, they believe some weird shit. As part of this belief, they're trying to create a body of knowledge that both delegitimates and then politically makes illegal, like out of bounds, critical race theory. And the, the bizarro aspect of this is that like critical race theory, critical theory in general, like this is a way of thinking that exposes power, right? That exposes oppression. Intellectually, it's the tools that makes it possible to resist domination. And so to, to try and take that away is really Orwellian, like really Orwellian, um, aside from trying to like rewrite history in a way that favors the white man. And so they target critical race theory. They don't know shit about critical race theory. I get, you think fucking Mike Pence has ever read Franz Fanon? Fuck you, man. No way. No fucking way. <laughs> so like anyway, so Ken Schultz. During the Trump era, Ken Schultz is like a top-rate sort of rationalist political science. It's like he does the large-end methods and all that shit. And he's very top-tier. But um, in the Trump era, he's become very online, very truth-to-power pundit in the mold of this podcast. So, like, he's a cool dude. I'm, I, I, love, I love when I see people like this go after the fucking far-right Trumpies does. So this is great. And then second tweet, John Carl Baker, program officer at the Plowshares Fund, lefty guy, very lefty. And he says, I am rarely more offended than when I, I fill out a survey and have to check very liberal as the nearest approximation of my political beliefs. And I, um, we, I feel like we've talked about this sort of on the show before, but uh, I was talking to somebody right before I saw that tweet about how calling a leftist liberal is like really not good. It's so it, <laughs> True. it's inaccurate because liberal is not left, right? Left has some orientation toward um, 
I mean, it's capacious, right? But it's some orientation toward like socialism or anarchism. And the, there are the only part of the left is that is liberal are the left liberals, which is like center, center left or whatever. But that's just like a small fraction. But our, our nomenclature and the way we talk about left in the U.S. especially has become very distorted by the fact that the Democratic Party became a third way liberal party. So like liberalism came to define the boundaries of like legitimate politics in the mainstream. And so in like if you're like a normal re reader of The Atlantic or The New York Times and you listen to NPR and you have like, you know, cloth bags that you use at the grocery store, if you're that kind <laughs> of person, which is like a lot of people, I mean, like I do that stuff, too. But like if you're that kind of person, chances are you think of left equals liberal. And that's not correct, right? There's a whole worldview that comes with liberalism, like the social contract and individualism and that redu like reducing society to individuals optimizing their behavior. And like there's so much that gets smuggled in to the phrase liberal that leftists do not subscribe to. The idea that you would force somebody who's a fucking Marxist, that not me, fucking Actually, I'm not going to speak for John. I think he's a Marxist. He's the face of, he's like the exact kind of guy who you would never want to call liberal. Like I chafe a little bit when I get called liberal, you know, and I'm not anti-liberal. I'm not an enemy of the liberals, but like that kind of annoys me a little bit. And so I can't imagine, and I'm the fucking hashtag not a Marxist guy, you know? And so oh my God. to call a fucking hashtag a Marxist guy that of very very liberal, it's like very offensive, you know. So I don't know. This is uh, you know tutorial for leftist politics, right? Left it, there there are left liberals, yes, that's some, but there are democratic socialists, there are social democrats, there are anti-fascists and anarchists, socialists, orthodox Marxists. There are even still communists around, right? So there's it's a big tent. Where's Jake when we need him? I know. No. This is like the ultimate. <laughs> I, I Jake's like, missing out. Yeah, he would Jake. have so much to say here. He's making the Marxist t-shirts for the pod. <laughs> yeah. And the tinfoil hat ones. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Cool. So, excellent. Jumping into my two tweets of the week. My first one is from Richard McGregor, an Australian journalist, writer, and author, and the current bureau chief for the Financial Times. So... He kind of popped off this week, tweeting, the fetishization of the five eyes as a kind of all-purpose Anglospheric policy vehicle was always going to reach its limits, and no surprise that it is New Zealand that is tapping on the brakes. What New Zealand is saying is unremarkable, that all statements shouldn't come through the five eyes, and that other multilateral outlets might be better vehicles for statements on, for example, China. Which is not to say that Five Eyes doesn't have immense value as these countries have trust in the habits of cooperation built over decades. Nothing wrong with leveraging that, say, on COVID and supply chains. The trouble with the New Zealand position is that when multinational coalitions have made statements on the shortcomings of the WHO inquiry, for example, New Zealand hasn't signed on. That was way broader than Five Eyes, and New Zealand not signing was baffling. So that was a lot. <laughs> what do you think about it, Van? Yeah, I mean, the thread itself kind of went all over the place. Like it started with one tone and then it shifted back and forth. 
Um, <laughs> the thing that I think is, so like, it's very fashionable. I don't know how much the New Zealanders are aware of this, but it's very fashionable right now in policy circles around the West, quote unquote West, to shit on New Zealand and their obsequiousness toward China. I, I f every time I bring this up or I hear a discussion in Wellington about this, they seem to be like almost totally unaware. Um, some of the policy people are like very like people who are making policy right now in national security. They're sensitive to this. Um, they're trying to like do their best to make, you know, near term decisions without looking carefully at their own strategy. But there's this like this sense that they can take the the sort of Anglo relationships for granted. And, you know, if uh, the Guardian and fucking Canberra Times and the Australian and every major newspaper, Financial Times, The Economist, The Washington Post, they're all pointing out how um the prime minister not the prime minister foreign ministers mahuta's like she gave this speech recently which had some contradictions in it about china policy um there was actually a very promising speech in certain ways but then in the qu question and answer section um some journalist asked her about five eyes or something and she gave a shit answer about how like they don't want to they don't want to expand five eyes or use five eyes for everything and that's a very legitimate position like five eyes is an intelligence sharing arrangement it's not an alliance right it's not a political vehicle it is a bunch of white countries which on the face of it looks really bad you know and so like the in, in the trump administration there was a big effort to actively politicize five eyes to take aim at China. And it, so in that context, when you have mainstream newspapers and all the pundits just shitting on you as like, you're the new, you, you know, you're the Albania is to the Soviet union as you are to China is the, the, the frame of reference here. Right. And like in New Zealand, they don't seem to, the pundit class seems to be completely aloof of this. And then the actual decision-making class, insofar as I have any insight into it, seems to be like unwilling to like revisit the narrative. And they've made these small decisions over time that have allowed them to create unfavorable perceptions among their friends because they've only been concerned about the perceptions that China has of them and not what their, friend, their friends' perceptions are. And so like the Richard McGregor thing is kind of hits all of that and more. So like I say all this because he is kind of taking a dump on New Zealand in this thread, but he's also pointing out what is true and correct. I think about New Zealand's position on five eyes. So New Zealand has some problems when it comes to China policy, but I think New Zealand is right about five eyes, which is like, don't politicize it. Don't change its basic purpose. Don't use it as a, the white race's best chance against China, whatever the fuck that is. You can be critical of New Zealand's China policy at the same time that you can agree with New Zealand's basic posture on five eyes. I don't know. This guy, this hit, hits you guys uh, more than some of the other issues that we talk about on the pod. Um, so if you have thoughts, jump in. But I think also 
this question about five eyes may come up again later in the pod. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder too, if it captures a distinctly Australian perspective on New Zealand, right? I mean, the two have been bound through Anzac for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, there's sort of like a superiority inferiority complex here. Uh, where Australia is like the middle power looking at New Zealand, who's kind of hitched to its uh, collective defense. But at the same time, I think folks in Canberra probably don't think New Zealand does enough to pull its weight and uh, will be will easily deride um, Wellington for, for sort of that free riding uh, tendency. I don't quite get the free riding argument anymore. Because it seems like that's the argument you use now. There was a diffuse argument about like, okay, it's the Australian alliance with America that keeps America in the region and New Zealand benefits from America being in the region. That's kind of a very abstract argument to describe free riding, but like I kind of get that. Beyond that, though, it's hard to see because it seems like recently when there are free riding type criticisms of New Zealand, it's like, Oh, you're breaking the consensus. You're breaking the groupthink. Therefore, you're free riding. If you don't do what we do, and it doesn't matter how racist we're being or how volatile we're being or how much risk we're taking, if you don't do what we do, you're free riding. And like, that's kind of weird, you know? I don't know. I feel like this discourse is not right. super healthy. Yeah. And I'm not trying to take a side. I'm just yeah. sort of pointing out the, the vibe I get here in Canberra. Oh, I think that's right. Right isn't true. I've, despite all the press like shitting on New Zealand and stuff, apparently all like the actual policymakers in like the UK and stuff aren't, don't actually care that much about it. I don't know how much of that is just like them trying to smooth things over and they're secretly shitting themselves or something. But Yeah. Well, it's hard to know what policymakers in other governments actively think. What I've heard behind the scenes since 2017, actually, this this dates back to when I first came here, was that there's a continuous concern that New Zealand is the weak link of Five Eyes countries. And like yep. every it seems like everybody is very attuned to that narrative. And so anytime New Zealand does anything that confirms the narrative, it's like boom, confirmation bias. Boom. There's evidence of it right there. Right. And like my the thing that I yell at people here is that like they need to fix that. You know, even if it's just a fucking a PR strategy or something like you should care a lot more what your friends think than what your potential future extortionist trading partner thinks. If ultimately like if shit, if shit hits the fan, New Zealand is going to choose the white Anglo countries over China as would just about every global North country. Right. And the, so the idea that you're going to like, continue to focus your fear on like what will China think what will China say what will China do and that that's like distorting your policy is is bad enough but the fact that you think about that and not the same about what will America think what will Australia think ask yourself that fucking question more you know and the other thing is weird here is that I feel like oftentimes the pundits and the intellectuals here are not on the same page as the government itself like the people who actually are making policy here kind of seem to be on the like leading edge of policy change, which sounds ridiculous because policy here doesn't change much, but like they seem to be more current in views of foreign policy generally 
than a lot of the the sort of like pundits and intellectuals and think tanker stuff. So my second tweet of the week is from David Roberts, who runs the Clean Energy and Politics newsletter Volts. So he says, older generations in the U.S. do not appreciate the fact that Gen X and younger Americans have never seen functional politics based on shared facts and compromise. To them, it might as well be a fairy tale. They've only seen a conservative movement descending into reactionary madness. And then he continues on with maybe something you can relate to, Van, when he says, I mean, I'm pretty fucking old at this point. But even for me, when I think back to my very first consciousness of American politics, it was deranged Republicans accusing Bill Clinton of running drugs and having people killed, the star witch hunt, Dan Burden shooting a watermelon, etc., whatever that is <laughs> and he says the only actual conservative movement and the actual GOP abandoned moderation a long time ago the only reason there's any notion of republican moderation at all in u.s culture is that the media carries the torch it's under left pundits and vsps who keep the idea alive and i mean aside from not entirely knowing what half of those references were considering like i probably wasn't even born um <laughs> i still do think that roberts makes a valid point about how american kids these days are growing up with like a constant chaotic instability in the politics they view today right yes i don't have a ton to add here except that like this is the same thing that's true for me which is that when i first started becoming politically awake in the 90s the republican party was already fucking crazy they were and so like they were they were on this witch hunt after clinton and they cared about uh you know sex scandals and stuff and, and, and newt gingrich was uh coming to the fore yeah and yeah like contract with america and all this garbage they were already deranged then you know like we've never seen a republican party that wasn't you know pitchforks and conspiracy theories. That's what it's always been. That's what I've always known them as. Also, before that, I knew them as the party that inherited all the racists after Lyndon Johnson's Great Society legislation in the 60s. So it's like, oh, we can't be Democrats anymore because they like the darkies. So we're going to have to go to the Republican Party. And that that's what I know of Republicans. So yeah, I don't know. I, th this vibed with me on like a generational level, I think. But it's also just true. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. All right. Uh, for this week's Armchair Analysis, we have an article by Charles Glaser in Foreign Affairs called Washington is Avoiding the Tough Questions on Taiwan and China. Uh, Glaser's argument is primarily to say that China's rise and relative U.S. decline and its refusal to recognize that reality are making major power war more likely. Therefore, the U.S. should adjust to this new reality. And Glaser says, in East Asia, that means giving Beijing greater leeway in the South China Sea, letting go of Taiwan, and accepting that the United States is no longer the dominant power in the, it once was in the region. All else being equal, Washington should be more, much more reluctant to reduce commitments that protect vital interests than ones that protect secondary interests. So that makes sense to me. Um, Taiwan's not necessarily a vital interest for the United States. But a few a few issues here. Um, first, I think Glaser sort of glosses over U.S. decline without justifying it, right? And relative decline, obviously, uh, is a basic fact of the international system right now, the U.S. relative decline. But I think Glaser sort of bakes in this notion of U.S. absolute decline without without really justifying it. And this this 
becomes problematic later in his argument. So he also paints US support for Taiwan as sort of a standalone, right? Um, by peeling back US support for Taiwan, I mean, okay, that's one thing, but it still fails to acknowledge that other democracies and countries around the world do support Taipei. Um, so I'm not sure that that alone would fix the sort of possibilities for war over Taiwan. Um, a third weakness I would like to highlight is that he isn't really advocating for ending U.S. alliances with Japan and Korea, but he essentially frames them as just about containing China. So he doesn't really acknowledge that those alliances are mutually beneficial and a two-way street. I think it's interesting that Glaser, so he, he says basically, okay, U.S. can let go of China or let go of Taiwan. And if the goal is to reduce tensions with China, uh, while still maintaining credibility. He says, sure, well, the U.S. can sort of uh, boost its troop presence in Korea and Japan and, and across the Pacific. So I'm not sure why Taiwan is the essential um, sort of uh, goalpost here. And, and he still seems comfortable with the idea of a more militarized presence, uh, troop presence in Asia, which in my mind doesn't quite alleviate the problem he's trying to get at in the fundamental argument. Yeah. Finally, he argues for a grand bargain with China, but it seems a pretty weak policy recommendation as I, I don't see any evidence that Beijing would honor such a grand bargain or commitment. Um, so it seems like it's sort of broaching it uh, out, of, out of the blue. Um, anyways, this stirred up a whole lot of controversy on Twitter, which I admittedly was not really privy to over the weekend. So plenty to discuss here. Every this argument for like a grand bargain with China, which inevitably involves sacrificing Taiwan on the altar in some way, this is not a new argument. I saw zero, zero that was new in Charles Glazer's argument. Some version of this pops up every year or two going back to the 90s. Um, Glazer is, of course, very smart. He's like an optimistic real defensive realist. Right. He wrote a famous article, I think, in the 90s called Realists as Optimists. I say all that because he's unimpeachable as a scholar. But this argument is not new. It has been debunked before. The only element that was not old the to point out American decline, because that's like a slightly more recent uh, thing to hitch policy arguments to. I don't want to get into the weeds of um, debating why we should not abandon Taiwan because um, we've talked about before on the pod. Uh, I don't think it's super productive to go down that path. I don't think it's very progressive to abandon a democracy. We have to, to own this situation a little bit because it exists because of our own policies historically. Um, but this did stir a lot of shit on Twitter. You know, Blake Herzinger, who's a friend of the pod, he's he said something like unfortunate about, you know, calling somebody else, calling Charles Glazer basically un-American. He sort of owned it, which is mea culpa and basically apologized for like bad choice of words. He didn't want to ad hominem anything that wasn't his intent. And so it's actually rare to see somebody even apologize on Twitter, you know, but um, that is the tone. And he's not like a vitriolic guy and he's not a reflexive hawk as far as i know like he agrees with more he agrees with us more often than he disagrees with us but uh, that's the state of things where a sane normal person would would go to the mats with like the un-american ad hominem as part of this argument about fucking taiwan policy you know james palmer is another friend of the pod 
fucking went off on like he said some, he had this long thread of that his rule of thumb with pieces he's subtweeting Glazer's piece here pieces that have utterly morally bankrupt underpinnings like let's abandon 27 million Taiwanese people on the basis of a nebulous idea he thinks that this shouldn't even be treated as a serious topic of discussion and the counter you know position to all this was Patrick Porter who we shouted out a couple weeks ago on the pod who was who was subtweeting Blake and I think also James when he said that everybody's taking a hooligan tone okay not an american word hooligan uh in general righteous swagger uh of critics of charles glazer so like and then so oh and then on top of this some dude who i didn't know who's a fucking asshole as far as i can tell called patrick porter a coward which is a fucking laughable thing to say on twitter of all platforms because it's fucking consequence free um, and that's how a unhealthy the China discourse has become B there's nothing new going on at the moment with Sino-US relations or with the Taiwan Strait there aren't new trends that have emerged we're on the same path that we've been on right and this piece is not making some new volatile inflammatory argument it's saying the same shit that people say every couple years. The idea that there could be like nothing new going on and yet experts of various stripes are going to the mats, going hard in the paint. Cowardice, hooligans, self-righteous swagger. What the fuck? Un-American. Like what's going on? You know, <laughs> like this is wild shit. Morally bankrupt. These are all like professionals too. The cowardice thing was by some nut job fucking Twitter egg or something. I don't know. But like the this is really strange and like it's it's not good. Um I, I don't think we should be abandoning Taiwan. I don't think it's a serious argument. I don't see how you can be pro democracy or progressive or even a fucking enlightened realist and think that it's okay to like just do nothing in response to Taiwan or China invading Taiwan or attacking Taiwan. Analytically, though, like we have to be thinking about like, what is the consequence of our changing our commitment? If we make some kind of policy change on Taiwan, does that make Chinese aggression toward Taiwan more likely or less likely? And it seems like abandoning Taiwan is not going to alleviate any kind of security precarity across the Taiwan Strait. A scholar at ANU, actually, Ian Henry, has this very good research about how our commitments with Taiwan are not as interdependent with our commitments to Korea and Japan as policymakers think. Um, it's, it's a very persuasive piece, and I think it's right because, like, the Taiwan situation is unique and the character of our commitment to Taiwan is different. But... And so, like, our credibility in general, I think, is not at stake in Taiwan. But right, right. there is, we're not thinking, I think, clearly enough about how we provide support to Taiwan, how we bolster Taiwan uh, independence slash democracy, right? Like, we don't have to prepare, we, we don't have to measure our commitment to them in terms of a great Mahanian struggle, like some pitch battle where it's like all against all and that that settles the thing once and for all like that's how we all like to imagine this 
and people who are uber hawks use that as the basis for like force planning and defense budget stuff. People who are uber doves or like the abandoned Taiwan crowd, they use that same argument. This is Hugh White's thing too. They use that argument to say, look, we don't want to have that super Mahanian battle with China. So therefore we need to do some like uh, undesirable policy like abandon Taiwan. It's fictional. Like why does it have to be this all out struggle? It's a nuclear state. We can't have an all-out struggle with a nuclear state. It's called mutually assured fucking destruction, man. Realistically, if we're thinking about defense of Taiwan, why are we not thinking about fucking counterinsurgency? Why are we not thinking about making sure that China will never be able to have free use of Taiwan? Because they're going to get their military officers fucking assassinated who are there occupying. You know, we don't have to have nuclear war as the metric for commitment. I feel like there's it's just a very blinkered conversation analytically. And now we've like jumped beyond the analysis to the like just bizarro ad hominems. It's kind of crazy. I also uh, I don't really understand his rankings of possible concessions here. Why does Taiwan come first? You know, he also men mentions the South China Sea as something we could just sort of not necessarily abandon to China, but retrench away from, uh, you know, but these concessions seem sort of arbitrary, right? What, why, why does he see Korea and Japan and U.S. troop presence there as less threatening than, you know, U.S. military presence and freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea? I, I don't think that case and the, the case for the ranking there or weighting is uh, really that clear. Yes. And the South China Sea part of his article, I feel like was almost a distraction. I, I agree that it wasn't well argued, but like you could have had a comprehensive piece, albeit unconvincing, just focused on Taiwan. And like, I think that there are arguments about how you would operationalize a restraint agenda in Asia that will that would intersect with some of these things, but just wouldn't look like like he's not making that best case for what we would think of as restraint. Like, I think there are better arguments that could be made for how you would do restraint in Asia responsibly and to not inflame things. And a, much of it has to do with like having an actual underlying theory of the case. You, what is it most likely to induce restraint in China, right? And like work backward from there, make debates uh, on those grounds, you know? And we're like very far removed from that at this point. So I don't know, like if, if his agenda was to get us to abandon our commitment to Taiwan and to the South China Sea, he could have been, he could have done a much better job than he did, I think. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. This week for Ask Me Anything, I have four questions. The first one is from Improper Lobster. Can institutions in NZ, like MFAT or MOD, change this grand strategy or does it require Van Jackson MP? Is this even a real question? This is. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Is this Alex? the same person who wanted you to run for office uh, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, this has come up. Um, he is asking it seriously, just in a joking way. He's kind of asking whether New Zealand's institutions can like create a grand strategy because we don't really have one or whether it requires someone like you to actually go into government and change it from the government angle. Well, if it requires me, then you're fucked. But uh, <laughs> I, I would say that like it is inevitable 
that a country like New Zealand, their grand strategy is going to change. The question is, will it change because it has been forced to and therefore it has to pay some big strategic price, right? Or will it change its own grand strategy ahead of the curve? In which case you're sort of uh, capitalizing on trends or mitigating disaster before it happens or whatever, you know? And it seems like the institutions here are very reluctant to change. And there is no culture of thinking in grand strategic terms. Like that's something that America does or something, you know? I don't see that changing in the immediate, but like the conversation about China has been shifting ever since I got here. Like New Zealand was the epitome of McDonald's peace theory, all in liberalization engagement wager on China. And its policy has not abandoned that posture yet. So like it's been sticky. It's still around that way of the people, the influencers, the, you know, the John Keys and the Helen Clarks who sort of championed that. They're still the influencers here, which is uh, part of the reason why change is so hard. But the conversation is changing. The government itself, especially the, the Ardun government, is is more nuanced on China and actively seeking to diversify away from China, which is actually a lot when you consider both that New Zealand is a very small state, but also that New Zealand um, is highly leveraged on China, like highly dependent on China economically. The idea that you're just going to abandon your economic patron, basically, overnight is not realistic and yet we're still seeing that move like we're still seeing grant robertson and whoever else actively stating the need to diversify away from china and this is i said mentioned earlier like new zealand's china policy its foreign policy in general like there are some contradictions in it that's kind of what i mean like on the one hand they're very wedded to this like china engagement we're still like they're a strategic trading partner this old style sort of language. And there's a lot of inertia favoring that. At the same time, they're rec they're seeing weaponized interdependence. They're aware of China's economic coercion of other friendly countries in the world, right? They see Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea. They see a fucking genocide in Xinjiang. They are postured as like future kind of uh, opponents or antagonists of Beijing at the same time that they are present day reliant on Beijing. And so there's tensions there. Will they get resolved over a long enough timeline? A hundred percent. This is going to change. It's just a question of whether it will change sort of too late or not. Okay, cool. The second question is from Maxime de Fortier from Science Pie. Big fan of the pod. You guys are what I've been looking for for years. Here's a question for you. As a Canadian who doesn't know a whole lot about Kiwi politics, could you explain why the recent speech by NZ Foreign, Foreign Affairs Minister is so important? What does it mean for the Five Eyes future? And also, where does New Zealand, the New Zealand military stand on the matter? Yeah, so I don't know if what what you guys think about either the question or Mahuta's speech, but um, this is kind of what we were talking about earlier in the show. Like what I've seen from the policymakers here was that that speech was like not representing a change in policy. Like in fact, it was kind of doubling down on like the status quo policy. There's nothing to see here, you know, but that includes for five eyes too. And the speech did not address five eyes. 
Five Eyes came up in the, the question and answer portion of the event she was speaking at. And so um, the Five Eyes future thing, unless Five Eyes is supposed to be some group think political speech act group, New Zealand will remain, New Zealand's not going to pull itself out of Five Eyes in the foreseeable future. Um, I, and I feel like the prime minister made some clarifying statement that suggested that too. They just don't want to use Five Eyes as the vehicle for China rivalry. And everybody else who's in Five Eyes needs to be okay with New Zealand not co-signing everything they fucking do. Do democracies have to go to the bathroom together? Is that the standard for what solidarity is supposed to mean? Because if that's true, then New Zealand won't stay in Five Eyes for long, right? The foreign policy inertia just does not favor China rivalry right now. And I I, I don't blame them. I, I, I feel like countries like Australia and the US are over leveraged in the rivalry sort of framework at this point. So I loved that foreign affairs speech because Mahuta was laying down indigenous markers that suggested an alternative narrative for how New Zealand engages with the world. So like very high potential, but at the same time, like I've said many times, there were contradictions there and officially there was no change in policy. And like what the the backdoor notes were from policy officials was that like there hasn't really been a change in policy, so there's no reason to like make a big deal about the speech. I'll move on to the third question. Um, so the third question is from a PhD, PhD student at the University of Washington. You recently criticized P. Diddy for being the face of neoliberal hip hop. But then the other day, you're saying good things about Master P on Twitter. How are they different to you? Ah, most important question today. So Diddy is an exploiter, like he's an oppressor, right? He basically robbed people who worked for him. And he's doing the same thing now with his current uh, initiative, Revolt TV. And worse than that, he was using the rhetoric of critical theory or anti-colonial studies. He's using the rhetoric of wokeness to get paid from white corporate America. And that's a pretty pernicious thing like that hurts the cause master p he's um I, I was listening to this interview with him and i said something nice about him because i've been uh, a fan from back in the day uh he he grew up in the new orleans projects like people were it was the murder capital of the world at the time and he has all of these like side hustles in the movie business um aside from music he played in the nba briefly so like he's continuously uh kept his athletic game up he's he makes fucking he has a pancake company and a cereal company and like all kinds of weird shit but the reason why he like does all this different stuff is to reinvest money back into the community He's trying to bring people up. He's trying to put people on. He's trying to create more millionaires. If you're taking a socialist view, Master P is not good because he's reinforcing capitalism itself, right? So if you think of capitalism as the oppressive structure, then there's just no winning, you know? Winning, being successful actually comes at the price of reifying the oppressive system. I'm a little bit agnostic on that view or like I'm willing to judge master p on a different standard which is like is he helping his community or not right is he is he 
redistributing wealth or not and he is you know i like what he's doing and it's just very different he serves a different existential purpose than someone like diddy who's out for himself okay and the final question this week is from rory mccain why don't you do more interview episodes with authors and such the ones you have done have been fantastic i love the undiplomatic project crew but you've also had some great interview episodes. Yeah, I would like to do more interviews. Um, I just don't have time, dude. Like it, it takes a lot of effort just to show up at the same time uh, for these group chats that we do for the episodes, you know. And then on top of that, to try and like arrange schedules with authors and like it's very hard. So in in the meantime, there's like no money in this, right? So if, if this was a, a profitable venture, I could invest, I could justify investing more time to do stuff like that, you know. Um, otherwise, it's just like targets of opportunity, um, one-off stuff. So like as time allows, I would like to do more interview episodes. But in the meantime, like we're not even doing an episode every week. Like we've had to shift temporarily to every other week. It's just like uh, time's a bitch. And that's why we need you to buy merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> subtle, guys. Subtle. <laughs> Coffees keep us running. All right, gang. That's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Uh, and uh, cottonbureau.com. If you like, search undiplomatic, you can pull up the merch. Uh, rate us on iTunes, all that stuff. Apparently, it helps a lot. Catch you next time. Peace. Peace.